Spinoffs, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. We get all practical on you today as we once again review a handful of the innovations and technologies developed by NASA for space that are making lives better here on Earth. Bill Nye has bad news and good news from Cape Canaveral, beginning with the launch pad explosion of a SpaceX Falcon 9. And Bruce Betts will take us on another tour of the night sky. Emily Lakdawalla is the Planetary Society's senior editor. Emily, some of the best space photos of the year, if not the decade, and some great sound for us to talk about. Let's begin with Juno. Juno really returned the science from its first orbital perigove with all science instruments blazing. Of course, I was always waiting for these JunoCam images, and they didn't disappoint. We saw some really cool detail on both poles of Jupiter, so I'm just really excited for this mission to get going. I wasn't even sure we were looking at the same planet. <laughs> well, you know, we saw hints of this certainly in the uh, Cassini images of Jupiter, but it's just so unusual to have this polar perspective on Jupiter. It's a, it's something we've never seen. And I think the coolest thing is that you can see that some of the storms actually have a vertical structure. You can see they cast shadows. That's just really awesome. Tell us about this little piece of audio. We'll play just an excerpt from it, but of course people can find it and much more in the blog at planetary.org. Jupiter's magnetosphere has processes that cause the emission of radio waves at, at different frequencies and with different intensities, and that's what uh, Juno's waves instrument is designed to pick up. But of course, when you're talking about radio with different frequencies and intensities, you can turn that into sound, just like we do in order to hear many of your listeners are listening to the show this way. And so here, uh, we can engage a different part of our brains to try to understand what's going on in Jupiter's magnetosphere. So enjoy this sound created from the data from the waves instrument. Space science made for radio. I love it. But there are things that you uh, can't capture just with sound, like this absolutely stunning photo of a tiny little spacecraft on a comet. Transitioning to ESA's Rosetta mission, it's just a month before the end, and they're orbiting lower and lower, and they have finally caught an image that has the resolution to clearly, unequivocally identify the location of the Philae lander at last. And there it is, uh, in really stunning detail, stuck in a crevice on a comet. I'm so glad they finally found it before the end of the mission. I swear this looks like something out of some Star Trek episode, you know, a starship trapped in this rocky surface. It it, it, it absolutely has to be seen. Uh, so take a look. We'll put up a link on the show page at planetary.org slash radio. And I'm sure you will continue to uh, write about both Juno and Rosetta, right, Emily? Absolutely. Thank you so much. She is our senior editor, the planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next is the very busy Bill Nye. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill, it's bad news and, and, well, at least pending good news out of Florida this week. Let's start with SpaceX. 
Uh, it's not. It wasn't an explosion, Matt. <laughs> so says Elon, right? It was a very, very fast fire. <laughs> yeah, but that's. I thought that was. Uh, never mind. <laughs> but I mean, it's just a difficult business. Everybody uh, got to remember. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, the rocket blew up, yeah. and you don't want that. Nobody got hurt. Everybody. When you go to a rocket launch, you are kilometers, miles away from the thing, so nobody got hurt. But still, uh, it's a setback. You know, you don't want. A fuel leaks that cause fast fires and catastrophic loss of payloads. But SpaceX uh, claims that if the humans had been in the Dragon capsule, they would have been flown to safety with the escape system. It's probably true. We always learn something from failures. Good luck to SpaceX. Carry on. In the meantime, not far away, there is a spacecraft sitting on top of a very different rocket. Uh, the Atlas V and the OSIRIS-REx, which is a tortured acronym <laughs> involving uh, a mission to asteroid Bennu, which was named by a Planetary Society member who at that time was only nine years old. We'll be down there, the uh, Planetary Society team, because we are deeply invested in this mission, and this is where we're going to learn more about asteroids and, as I like to say, our place in space writ large because asteroids are made of the primordial solar system material. So whatever happened in the ancient days of the solar system or ancient periods of the solar system, we will do our best to learn more about it. And of course, Matt, we do not want the Earth to get hit with an asteroid. So the more we learn about them, the better we're going to be. And Matt, this is unusual. We've strapped, they've strapped a single solid booster to the side of an Atlas V rocket. It's kind of crooked looking. And I guess, like, you know how one might balance a broom on his, the palm of your hand for fun? And then uh, I guess sing the saber dance. You heard it here, people. Bill and I with the saber dance. Imagine doing that with a couple of uh, hockey pucks taped to one side of the broom. It would be <laughs> like a crooked thing, but it's doable. And uh, NASA promises it won't start to pinwheel. So, uh, we'll, well, we'll... it's not their first time, strangely enough. And then, uh, so it's an exciting mission. I'm very excited to be down at Cape, can I say down, be in the southern part of the U.S. for the launch of another rocket. It's very exciting. There is one more exciting thing that is just ahead, what, early in the new year? As a lot of people now know, and a lot of people are, are stopping you on the street saying, hey, I heard about your new TV show. Yes, Bill Nye Saves the World. <laughs> uh, it'll be on Netflix. You know, TV show, Matt, is kind of an older reference uh, from, from us young, old guys. I'm an old guy. Uh, so uh, I know the feeling, but we're, it'll be on Netflix and we're going to do uh, an episode on space exploration and the value of planetary exploration. And I will make the case that if we were to discover life on another world, it would change this one. It would change the way everybody feels about being a living thing in the cosmos. It's an exciting time. Let's light these candles. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Matt. He is the CEO of the Planetary Society, soon to be the host of Bill Nye Saves the World, as you heard on Netflix. And uh, we're going to go on now and talk about NASA's, uh, some of its small attempts to save the world. We're going to talk about spinoffs with Dan Lockney.
They're called spin-offs because they are innovations spun off by NASA from Solutions for Space Exploration and Development. Some of the best are collected each year in a fascinating publication simply called Spin-Off. It divides them into such broad categories as health and medicine, transportation, energy and environment, and industrial productivity. The man in charge of the book and the rest of the space agency's impressive effort to share its technical knowledge and inventions is Technology Transfer Program Executive Dan Lochte. Dan recently rejoined me by telephone from his NASA HQ office in Washington. Dan Lochte, a pleasure to get you back on Planetary Radio to talk about more of those amazing spinoffs. Welcome back. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. I think we skipped a year or so in there, but no shortage of terrific uh, products and technologies and software and other stuff to talk about. I was all set to talk about the the current book, the 2016 book, but you said you've got the 2017 book almost ready. Yeah, we, we don't let any uh, grass grow under us. We're, all, <laughs> we're always working on the next book. The NASA has been uh, continuously publishing this um, book since 1976. And um, uh, as soon as we finish one, we're, we're working on the next. And that's right, 2017 will be out at the end of um, the year. Uh, we're looking forward to it. We have 50-plus stories one better than the next, covering the full range of, of consumer goods, industrial applications, and, and you name it, uh, all the different ways that NASA technology finds its way into your everyday life. Look forward to uh, taking a look at that book, and uh, we will tell people how they can get a hold of these. I mean, you can read it for free online, but you can also get a free copy, at least I assume if you're here in the United States. It's a great read and great publication. It's beautifully produced. Do you have some favorites out of the uh, things that will be in there? I do. One neat one uh, is out of our Marshall Space Flight Center. We're designing the um, the Ares rocket, this gi- ginormous rocket that's going to go to the, the moon, since replaced by the um, SLS, the Space Launch System. We talk about that a lot on this show. There you go. So this, this is the, the precursor to it. And uh, it had developed a, um, uh, a vibration, kind of a shimmy on the launch pad, more than a shimmy, uh, would have caused the um, astronauts to liquefy before launch. Oh. And that is... That is not a good thing to do to them. Yeah. Um, and it's no, way, it's no way to start any kind of trip. I said, oh, we, we need to fix this. If this were something like um, a stable platform on Earth and it was shaking around, you could just strap it down or throw a bunch of mass at it, you know, bury it in concrete and prevent it from, from shaking. Uh, but because it uh, is a launch vehicle and you have to actually get it off the Earth, you, you can't strap it down or make it real heavy, and you've got to find a ways to make it stop vibrating. So we, we developed a simple tune mass damper uh, from a baffle system that controls the slosh of the liquid fuel in the vehicle uh, reduced the vibration significantly using not too many parts and, and using the existing liquid fuel in the, in, the, in the spacecraft. So we're looking at this technology thinking, what, what else can we do with it? I mean, who else can benefit from this? And we thought, okay, what else is tall and you don't want it shaking? Oh, skyscrapers. So we went up to New York and met with some, some architects and showed them how it works. And uh, the first tune mass damper that was developed out of Marshall for the, the, the rocket was just installed in the new um, B-2 building in Brooklyn, which is uh, uh, the tallest building in Brooklyn. And then the manufacturer, the firm Thornton Tomasetti, the architecture firm, they've got the, the same technology slated for their next handful of um, uh, skyscrapers they're building. So that, that's a fun, recent example of solving a problem for space that has very practical real-world applications. 
You bet. I hope there are some builders here uh, in my home region of Southern California that are talking to you as well. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of a lot of folks are interested in this. It, it, but it took one company to, to, to take a chance on the technology. I think the NASA name helped uh, get into this, helped us get into this already mature industry that's generally pretty risk averse. And they said, well, does it really work? And we said, yeah, we actually, we actually have the tallest building in Alabama as our vibration test facility. And we went out there and shook it and flipped this, this switch and it stopped shaking. We said, all right, it really works. I said, wait, hold on. Y'all have a, a, a full building <laughs> that you use for just for shaking? Yeah, we have stuff like that. <laughs> so that, that's a real fun one. And, that, and that's one of the several stories that, that's in this upcoming book. That's a great one. Are there any others that you want to call out? Maybe one more from that uh, 2017 book? There's another neat one, I think, that, that just for the um, bizarre nature of it. So I live in a city, and I don't know a lot about farming. Um, and I imagine there are many people who either live in cities and suburbs and, and don't realize that most of the tractors that run on American farmland are actually not manned, um, which is, is kind of frightening. You know, as someone who grew up watching the, the Terminator film and knows what happens when you allow the <laughs> robots to start taking over. Um, <laughs> but but we can be reassured that um, they're on uh, uh, precision controls that are enabled with GPS software that was developed out of our JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, that allows them to operate within one centimeter of precision. So a lot of the farmland has these unmanned tractors that um, are, are working their, their, their crops. So in, in addition to perhaps being the stuff of nightmares, it also reduces um, overseeding. It allows for more uh, accurate application of pesticides and fertilizers, we reduce runoff through the efficiency of, of the, um, the lanes that we're creating and uh, fuel efficiency, and, and all around it's a good thing, I suppose. I thought that this was just a scene from that 2014 movie Interstellar when uh, the farmer astronaut uh, goes out and kicks his tractor and it takes off and starts doing the fields. I, yeah, that'll be here someday. I had no idea that NASA had already pulled us into that era. I didn't either, and I, I feel the responsibility, you know, outside of my natural work is the, in tech transfer to just let everyone know that the tractors aren't manned. <laughs> you know, I think everyone else should know this, too. There's a story from our, our 2016 book that you know, also uh, agriculture-related, and this one's currently up on the website, that I think is just fascinating. It relates to also my ignorance of modern agriculture. <laughs> but, um, so uh, rice, when you picture rice being grown, it, at least for me, in um, uh, these patties of water, rice is grown by flooding it. It turns out that isn't entirely necessary and that like other crops, it just needs to be watered with some degree of regularity. And this flooding, in addition to being an inefficient use of water, uh, potentially damaging to the crops. We're introducing an unnecessary waste of water and then also uh, potential volatility to the, um, the crop itself. And a lot of people rely on rice. <laughs> yes. There's a lot, of, a lot of rice throughout the world that is grown and relied on. We, we worked with a company called Applied Geo Solutions that uses NASA data to give information to rice farmers about how much water they should be using and then expected yields from the rice and allows us allows the world agricultural market to better predict rice crop outcomes and to better manage the, the crop. And again, the, the, the part that surprised me in discovering that isn't 
that NASA data is useful for agriculture. As it turns out, we've, we've known that for quite some time, whether it's um, our weather forecasting or it's precision work and analyzing precipitation underground or, or crop management. In general, it's, it's that it turns out you don't need to flood rice crops. Dan Lockney is NASA's Technology Transfer Program Executive. He'll tell us more about the latest spinoffs in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm Robert Picardo, Planetary Society board member and now the host of the Society's Planetary Post video newsletter. There's a new edition every month. We've already gone behind the scenes at JPL, partied at Yuri's Night, and visited with CEO Bill Nye. We've also got the month's top headlines from around the solar system. You can sign up at planetary.org forward slash connect. When you do, you'll be among the first to see each new show. I hope you'll join us. Hi, Emily Lakdawalla here with big news from the Planetary Society. We're rolling out a new membership plan with great benefits and expanded levels of participation. At the Planetary Society, passionate space fans like you join forces to create missions, nurture new science and technology, advocate for space, and educate the world. Details are at planetary.org forward slash membership. I'll see you around the solar system. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. NASA has created or developed thousands of technologies and innovations for space that offer valuable solutions down here on the ground. Dan Lockney is sharing a tiny sample of the latest spinoffs. He's the agency's Technology Transfer Program Executive. There is one more from 2016 that uh, is somewhat agriculture-related. I did a double-take when I saw who's behind it. Robert Zubrin of the Mars Society, who started a company for, I guess it's not fair to call it a Martian beer factory, but do you know the one I'm talking about? I do, I do. And, and this is, you know, when you go off to space, you, you can't pack everything you need. With these long journeys, we're going to go six, 12 months at a time. You need to find ways to recycle um, wastewater. You need to find ways to, to grow your own crops. And you need to find ways to, if possible, use existing resources Robert Zubrin's company developed a way to use um, capture CO2, which is largely what the Martian air is made out of, and turn it into a couple things, you know, fuel, oxygen, drinking water, and then also to uh, use the same technology to carbonate beer. Uh, so, so we are seeing uh, Martian technologies for capturing the, the, the on-the-land in-situ resources that we expect to find in Mars, that same technology of, of capturing CO2 from the air and, and infusing it into beer. And sure enough, in the uh, spinoff 2016 book, there's a picture of this. It's actually a fairly portable unit that uh, captures CO2 from the air, whether, I suppose, whether it's uh, here on Earth or Martian air someday. Uh, I, I guess they'll have to grow the crops under a, a dome or something up there. <laughs> yeah, well, you've seen the Martian. It'll be just yeah. like that. Yeah, we'll make potato beer. There is one more. I don't want to catch you by surprise here, but, I mean, there's so many in all these different categories in the spinoff 2016 book. But I was fascinated to see, among those in the medical category, uh, some research that may be helping people with osteoporosis here on Earth. A lot of the research that we do has direct correlation to our understanding of aging. You know, the, the deterioration of the muscles or of the astronauts when they don't have the resistance of, of gravity to, to push against them helps us understand what happens to your muscles as you get older, the radiation and calcification of the bones and the, um, 
radiation in the cataracts that, 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 or the, the eye issues that could develop from exposure to it. All, all of these things that we try to mitigate um, are also the same types of things that happen to the body as they get older. And I think what you're referring to is a company called Amgen. Um, we worked with them uh, by flying mice up into space, watching their reaction to different medications that could help resist the um, effects of osteoporosis on mice. And, and we discovered several different treatments that have now turned into a, a medication called Prolia. And that's on the market now to, to treat osteoporosis. And, and it's all from our brave mouse astronauts and the work that they did up on the International Space Station. Dan, we could go on and on. The list is not quite endless, but, uh, but pretty long of all of these great long. innovations. You bet. Uh, but there is one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we run out of time, and that is uh, an announcement that I saw in May of a new searchable database. Tell us about that. Oh, that's so much fun. That is our uh, public domain database. And we've cataloged and made searchable every patent that NASA has had since we first started filing in 1963. And these go back through all the history of the agency. You can watch the, the agency's technologies mature. Some of the stuff that's on there is, is still 20, 50 years ahead of its time. Everything free for the public to use, unlike our patent licensing activity, which is another thousand technologies that are a little more exclusive for for companies to um, form companies around. But these we expect the research community to use and to take full advantage of. And it's a treat to just go through and see all of the odd things. My favorite is something called Jet Shoes, and it is just as absurd and wonderful and futuristic <laughs> as you might expect it to be. Um, and, and it comes complete with a drawing of a pair of shoes that have jets in them. And you control and, and steer and uh, manage the thrust with your toes. And uh, it, it is definitely, definitely fantastic. And there's, there's, there's other things in there that are a, a little bit more meaty and might have a little bit more scientific rigor to them. Um, but all in all, the, the catalog itself is just a, a fun thing to go through. So who needs a jetpack when you've got jet shoes? Um, Dan, I found this and much more at technology.nasa.gov. Is that the best place to go on the web? That isn't just the best place to get this information. That's the best place to go on the web. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you enjoy your job, don't you? I do. It's a lot of fun. Dan, I, I look forward to talking to you again. Uh, let's not wait too long. Let's uh, talk soon after that 2017 book comes out and, and talk more about some of these uh, spinoffs from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Good to talk to you again. You too. Dan Lockney, he's the Technology Transfer Program Executive at NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C. That means he's responsible for uh, all of NASA's management of intellectual property, which uh, they don't tend to hang on to very well. They'd rather see it move out there across uh, the country and the world and, and do a lot of good. And if you're one of those who uh, doesn't really think that just going to amazing places around the solar system and beyond or learning about them is enough of a justification, well, check out the spinoffs, and uh, you may be amazed at... Uh, just how much good is uh, being done by the work that NASA has accomplished. We 
close, as always, with Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who uh, is back uh, with a look at the night sky. Let's uh, head into it. Our, our time is short today. Okay, look low in the west shortly after sunset, and you may be able to pick up Venus, or you can just wait a few weeks as it gets higher and easier to see. And then we've got in the south in the early evening... Uh, both Saturn and Mars, Mars to the left and reddish. And then on the 8th, the moon is very close to Saturn, and on the 9th, close to Mars. We move on to this week in space history. Uh, Two things that excite Matt. 1977, Voyager 1 was launched. And then, as as you may be aware, Star Trek premiered 50 years ago this week. 50 years. Half a century of uh, trekking through the universe. I and awesome. uh, yeah, and Voyager 1. Yeah, right, big deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurt. That hurt. I hope they're not listening over there at JPL. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, we move on to random space facts. <laughs> at aphelion, its farthest point from the sun, Mercury is about one and a half times as far from the sun as it is at perihelion, its closest point to the sun. Quite quite elliptical, that Mercurian orbit. Kepler would be so proud. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he would. Congratulations, Johannes. <laughs> we move on to the trivia contest, and uh, I asked you, uh, what is the apparent brightness ranking of the Scorpius star Antares, which is still hanging out near Saturn and Mars, compared to the other stars in the night sky? How'd we do? Only the real dyed-in-the-wool uh, plan ratters out there entered this time. Still had quite a few, but not up to the crowds we've had in recent weeks. Good I guess job, not... woolly plan ratters. <laughs> not enough people wanted to go to the trouble, I guess, of, uh, of digging this one up. We did get this entry from Kevin Dietrich, who was chosen uh, by Random.org. He's in Bow Arts, Washington. He said... If you include the sun in the list, as it is a star after all, Antares is the 16th brightest star as seen from Earth. In other words, apparent magnitude or brightness. You you told people don't include the sun, but he's still right, isn't he? Well, except that I told him don't include the sun. But yes, <laughs> the, the ranking is 15th, not including the sun. I also refer to the night sky. And uh, 16th, if you're... Uh, feel compelled to include the sun. Well, virtually everybody else did say 15, but Kevin, we're going to give this to you. So congratulations. That's nice, by the way. Yeah, I know. I, it's a good thing I'm in charge. That's right. I did a double take when I saw this from John Gallant in Lima, New York. He said, Antares, because it's a supergiant, it's as wide as three astronomical units. More than that, actually. From the uh, distance, three times the distance from Earth to the sun. Holy cow. Yeah, it's big. That's the technical term. I don't have time to mention all the other great funny stuff that we got, but we did get from Dave Fairchild, Antares is a giant star, the Alpha Scorpio. Apparent brightness puts the star at 15th in the row, but based on real magnitude, the actual you'd see displays a huge diameter and jumps to number three. (laughs) Poetic. He is, isn't he? All right, we're ready to move on. All right, we go to the uh, early days of the human space program. Which Mercury program human missions landed in the Pacific Ocean? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. 
Wow, I like that one. I should be able to answer that, but I can't. You've got until the 13th, September 13th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, get this one to us. And uh, once again, the prize package will be a gorgeous Planetary Radio t-shirt, a Planetary Society rubber asteroid, and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account, the worldwide network of uh, nonprofit telescopes waiting for you to point them at the skies and, and snap some pictures. Sir, we are done. Thank you for making this one so brief, though I, I miss going into more detail. Maybe next week. All right, next week. Meanwhile, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about the color of earwax. Thank you, and good night. With more proof that he is the Planetary Society's very own spinoff right there. That's Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who proudly joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its spun-up members. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed the theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.